0: Welcome to Take the Hill, this is a leadership podcast dedicated to bringing you conversations with leaders who are influencing uh, their respective industries. Uh, We're excited to have an incredible guest here today, uh, Steven Adelkoff, uh, who brings a wealth of experience, uh, both domestic and abroad. Uh, We'll give you his bio here shortly. Um, You know, as we're we're looking at where we're at right now in terms of, you know, this global pandemic and, and thinking about what's going to be the next steps you know, I'm reminded of a quote from Clausewitz, who was a German or a Prussian general and military strategist way back in the late 1700s. He said, although our intellect always longs for clarity and certainty, you know, our nature often finds uncertainty fascinating. And I think that's going to frame a lot of our conversation today because, you know, there's, there's so much innovation and, and I'm not saying there's so much uncertainty, but organizations and whole industries are beginning to refine and reshape what they do and how they do it. Um, So it'll be interesting in our conversation today to get some of Steve's perspectives uh, and and see where the conversation goes. So welcome to the show, Steve. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you so much, yeah. Dr. It's a pleasure.
0: <laughs> well, first of all, we're going to have to tell you, just Patrick, <laughs> you know, <Dr>. yeah. <laughs> sounds so, so, so really fancy. But Steve, I mean, <laughs> you you bring over 25 years of experience in all aspects of power and alternative energy and commodities industries. Um, you know, you've led teams in negotiation, both domestic and international transactions involving commodities, power generation and development. Uh, you've done work in the renewable energy field, you know, commodity exploration. Exploration. Um, it's such a diverse skill set. And, you know, then you even get into, like, the regulatory and tax accounting disciplines and and risk. Uh, so your background is is amazing. So, you know, we want to welcome you to the show and thank you for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Patrick. It's a pleasure. Uh, I, the, some of the information you had was um, a little historic. Let, let me Let me start from the professional beginning. Uh, I actually was for 20 years, um, first an associate, then an equity partner at the global law firm of K&L Gates. Uh, I was just the luckiest guy in the world to be able to learn what I learned and do what I did. Um, as a partner of of that global law firm, uh, but it seemed like everything that I did was at the epicenter of some kind of financial crisis somewhere along the way. So I became an expert in off balance sheet financing, a la Enron. Oh, well, my deals never blew up, but I was one of a handful of of those that did um, uh, synthetic leases, other uh, off balance sheet structures that, that that I created. In fact, if you remember, we're, we're in Pittsburgh, if you remember the old four systems um, development in Warrendale, that was the first off balance sheet um, transaction that was done in the region using real estate. Um, Yes, used to represent PNC doing it. Um, uh, uh, That deal was the the, pointing. That deal with four systems was done by the Old Mellon Bank. A lot of fun. And um, um, moved into just wonderful, interesting things. Became an expert in Sharia alternative investments and structuring Sharia. Um, indebtedness and transactions, so that they met the law, uh, Islamically compliant laws, primarily for for Sharia investors, including the Dubai government. Uh, uh, did international project finance um, when the 2008 crisis occurred. Um, I did a ton of securitizations, um, CDOs, CLOs, the things that you know blew up the world. Only mine never did. Mine were all good. <laughs> That's oh, that's a lot of investment advisors doing that, so all of that technology i i um i loved and i and i knew and um uh, my time at Can l gates was just fantastic um but there uh, a paradigm shift occurred uh somewhere in the early two thousands where um when you when 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 you started with a great firm. Um, and not just a law firm, but also accounting firms and architecture firms. They were real professions, and particularly for lawyers, one got to exercise a curious mind and um, learn new things, and just doesn't get better than that um, for someone who has a curious mind. But as time goes on, it, it had to be more business and less profession. That's nobody's fault. It just had to be. It had people had to focus on getting your time down, billing your bills, collecting your bills doing the blocking and tackling to keep a global professional service firm going. costs a lot of money to do it. And at that point, I said, you yeah, for 20 years, I was with the big yacht and and loved that. You no, know, it's time to go with some dinghies in the world, professional dinghies, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and did so. So in um, uh, 2009, I became the CFO and General Counsel of a company called Sharia Capital, which is publicly traded in London, uh, started by my dear friend, Eric Meyer. Um, actually in New Canaan, Connecticut um, uh, and um, general counsel and CFO of that. Then um, started a business with two other guys, a private equity firm where we invested in um, primarily power assets. It's called International Electric Power. Um, uh, Did some Really um, very difficult deals, Um, some deals that were so difficult they didn't get done, and then some of the most rewarding deals of my career. So uh, the hard ones, we did a deal in Pakistan, tried to buy uh, 100 megawatts of power in Pakistan, right outside of Karachi, and what I call the sort of Fox Chapel of Karachi, very (laughs) nice area, but otherwise very difficult place. Uh, 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 Tried to do a deal in Haiti that was um, uh, taught me more about corruption than anything you would ever want to know. Um, uh, I used to have straight hair, and then after that deal, it got <laughs> curly and fell out. Um, our most successful deals, though, um, we built the largest um, uh, solar farm in the Cayman Islands. And my 15 minutes of fame is that uh, Richard Branson ended up buying that deal uh, at the end of December of 19th. So that was that was good. That was cool. we, he bought it from the guys we sold it to. Uh so that I love that. Uh awesome. yeah, it is it is really fun. Um the most transformative deal that I did with International Electric Power was a deal in Panama. And uh Panama was very, very good to us. It was a very interesting deal. Um, but really what was most interesting about it was after that deal, we had a bunch of money in Panama and I needed to figure out the most efficient tax structures. And that required moving money around the globe, actually, through Spain, first finding appropriate tax treaties to leverage to get the the, the, the most desired result, uh, and then moving that money around. And what I learned at that time was that... Um, a skill set that is little appreciated and is going to become more and more important as time goes on is how to do the global flow of money. And uh, that led me into learning anti-money laundering laws, um, sanctions laws, um, international taxation. And I knew some of it, but really started to become all the more curious about it. Today, I, um I, I helped run a bank in Puerto Rico uh, called Fairwinds International Bank, and I'm the chief compliance and legal officer. It is a private wealth bank, um, styled as a Swiss private wealth bank, and Puerto Rico may be the last bastion of privacy vis-a-vis the rest of the world, not so—not the United States. Um, fascinating, fascinating stuff, where this whole thesis of how difficult the global flow of money is, um, uh, and we'll get into the coronavirus. But uh, one thing I truly believe is that the international fight for tax dollars is going to be a big conversation on what goes on post what, what, when, when we get out of the sheltering uh, mm-hmm. in place. So the one thing I do, um, another part of the school is that I have a private equity firm where we invest in. Oh, smaller, interesting deals. One deal that I'm invested in is actually a company that um, distributes water in Saudi Arabia and Riyadh, um, hopefully to move into Jeddah, and um, uh, fascinating guys, really, really fascinating guys. Um, uh, and, 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 and I do my, my favorite hobby, which is teaching. And, uh, and, and and I'm you know honored to do it with Patrick I do it at Rutgers University as well online we've just completed a global financial crisis class how ironic is that and uh, yes and absolutely loving this was the first semester I got to teach with Patrick at, at, at Point Park and couldn't have enjoyed it more really fantastic students um, uh, the leadership class I can't, but I, I of course bring the, the business ethics into it and Hopefully, they don't learn anti-leadership with me, you know, spouting off about tax fraud and all kinds of stuff. I made them watch the Enron story and then told them, those guys really weren't bad guys. I, I knew them. They were that bad. That's so what it's a hard argument to make. That's what I did. Well, well, certainly. Uh,
0: no, this is great. Again, uh, from, you know, I'm always processing, so I have at least probably two or three course ideas for you next semester. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <fantastic>. <laughs> amongst other, a whole bunch of questions for you. So yeah, absolutely. And what was it? I mean, like you said, you had that elongated history with you, like you had said with the yachts of the industry, right? So what was it like making that jump to kind of, as you said, the dinghies, right? Where it's a little bit more uncertain, a little bit more, you know, I mean, the path forward wasn't maybe not so clear, but I mean, you'd no doubt brought a lot of expertise and a lot of knowledge, but yet it still had you grow and refine. I mean, what was that jump like? Uh, great question. Um, uh,
1: So first, and, and I loved your quote. Um, uh, Thank you. To, to start the show. Oh, and it, it is so true that randomness uh, defines you know, everything in life. And if we don't think that we're we're not thinking very well, yet randomness is disconcerting. Um, It was very disconcerting for this lawyer uh, to like sort of step out and become an entrepreneur in a smaller firm and what that might mean. Um, uh, One of the things that happened with it was that I prepared for quite some time. So I actually went back to get my um, MBA at Cornell um, uh, in, I guess, was 2004. And spent two years doing that while also doing my practice at K&L, and my partners were wildly supportive of it. And um, that was critical so that I had a skill set that expanded um, rather than just being a lawyer. Being a lawyer is a great skill set, but it's just being a lawyer. right? Sure, it's <laughs> just women. <laughs> it's fun, it's yeah. just women. So, um, uh, going through the MBA program at Cornell was huge. was was really huge and allowed me to make it not quite as as scary. Um, uh, frankly, it took a long time to devise the path, and and a lot of that was negotiating with Sharia Capital, my friend Eric Meyer, who had been a client. And you know, we took I helped take them public in and in, in London. Um we raised three hundred and fifty million dollars of Dubai government money to structure these Sharia funds. I knew there was enough money in there uh so that, you know, assuming Eric didn't hate me, that uh, uh things would be fine, I could get paid and um uh pretty scary. But I'll tell you what though, um I wouldn't trade it for the world. You know, you you really give well, the the younger you are when you're in an environment where you're in the yacht and you get to learn a lot, but the, sh- the ship is stabilized um, and, and all you're doing is growing. You're sort of like, you know, first you're in the in the in the, in, in the room where they serve the food and you're being the bus boy. And then you learn how to, you know, clean the rooms and clean the deck. And then you learn how to schedule the entertainers. And then you learn, you know, what the captain likes to drink and you learn all of those wonderful things. Uh, you can only do that in that kind of environment with that kind of safety. But then when you plunge out, there's just nothing more exciting and fun and, and interesting. And you learn that you, you, you don't need as much as you think you need. Um, can, that's not to say that it can't be equally as lucrative, but it is to say we all are scared that, you know, we're not
0: going to have enough. And then yeah. you learn, you figure it out yeah that's a really interesting point and it's you're right i mean you're again it's great because you're learning so much and you're getting to see it firsthand like you said and you're you're responsible for what seems like a lot but after a while there's that diminishing returns right i mean you, you have you have to stretch out and then you find out hey maybe i did learn a few things along the way um,
2: um and, was, oh, i'm sorry yeah uh, uh, again I, when it comes to economics i'm i'm very limited uh it's not not my forte, but, but I'm really intrigued with the international part of it and dealing with the cultures and so forth. Um, I mean, uh, what did it take for you to adjust uh, your methods or uh, the way you uh, operate when you start dealing with all these different cultures?
1: Another great question. I'm not sure, by the way, that I was very successful at it uh, and, and that I even got better at it as time. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you there were, um, the, the, there's always interesting challenges. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in Pakistan um, and that's a hard place to spend time. And it, uh, it, it was in 2013, 14, uh, 12, 13, and 14. And uh, and I'm Jewish and they're all Muslims. And um, I, it was my role to come in and, beat the banks up who had taken over this asset on um, this you know pretty bad roughed up power plant and by the way the power plant um uh, uh it, it it produced um three million gallons a day of clean water which is you know unheard of in karachi water is really really scarce clearly what i learned is that um uh, it's 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 not always so easy to get along with everybody, and sometimes just the ways that we do things are not the ways you should. And, and I kind of learned how to practice in New York, where we say "oh, mango, whatever we have to say, you know? <laughs> uh, and that's not the way it's done in the world. Not the way it's done in Pakistan. You um. Uh, you 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 really learn. It's actually a wonderful, humbling experience. And then I mean, one of the things that that's sort of I, I have a feeling will break my heart as in the medium term post coronavirus is that um, travel internationally in particular is going to be so difficult. Um, we in a deglobalized world, uh, I'm not going to get the opportunity to, to do it as much. And that just it's uh, uh, that's sad. That, that 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 I that will break my heart, but yeah, very difficult thing to do, very humbling.
0: Yeah, so that deglobalized you know environment that we might be facing, it, I I think that's going to hurt a lot of organizations because again, I think the opportunity to travel has taught me so much because it gives you perspective on the way that you're accustomed to doing business here in the U.S. domestically. And the way that it is and how much it varies globally, even though the visions might be the same, the process is sometimes completely different. Like, I remember being in Spain and talking about with a, a owner of an organization and like, you know, what is what is your fear three to six months from now? And he looked at me and he goes, I don't know if I have one because I'm making <laughs> enough money. My family and my kids are happy. I don't want to earn any more money. <laughs> i don't want to increase my market share wow Uh, And it's it's the exact opposite of you know our capitalistic views right so but but i mean that idea though gives me additional perspective that i wouldn't have had if we were not able to travel there and go there
1: right so true so 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 true and you've traveled all over the place
0: patrick you know very well not as interesting as yours. (laughs) though. I was probably still on the yacht if we're talking about paradigms here. So, so looking now, I mean, you know, and again, you can tell me if I'm incorrect here, you know, I'm looking at kind of maybe going back to the U S or even globally kind of labor models and where capital resides within our economies. Right. And if you think about it over the last hundred years, like you look at, in maybe the early 1900s where, you know, workers didn't have the opportunity to build up capital, but maybe a little more wealthy folks have. Uh, and you see that shift, you know, even into like the forties and seventies where workers, you know, gained some economic stability and they were able to put money away and maybe the markets weren't as necessarily as good as a little more imbalanced. Do you see that changing now, like in terms of that flow or that balance between folks who are able to generate capital versus those that are not
1: that's some great, great questions. Um, let me throw out some observations here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, with it, with all the sheltering in place, my life hasn't changed a bit. I mean, basically, yeah. uh, uh, my mother. Uh, I, I promised my mother I wouldn't tell people this, but I'm kind of enjoying <laughs> sheltering in place. It's great. It's, it's it's a lot of fun, and many. You know, you can make you you make your own fun. But it is true, I, I live downtown, I look outside of my apartment, um, the, uh, the corner of Stanwick and Boulevard of the Allies where the Archdiocese is, and the line of those who need food, who they, they do a handout, a little package every night, is around the corner. It's, um, you know, it's, it's so devastating for those at the lower part of the pyramid, and it was devastating in the Great Depression, right, we heard that we see that in the recessions that came up in um, sort of in the ones that, 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 that we uh, kind of remember the most uh, 2001 of course, 2008 it's, it's, it's always the, those that um, uh, are, are in the lower income category have less have developed less skills uh, that get hurt the worst. And, um, this is no different. And 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 there's there's another big point that's coming up that um, when, when you talk about global financial crises, the two professors who are the rock stars in this are a guy named uh, uh, Rogoff, Ken Rogoff um, from Harvard and Professor um, Reinhardt. Uh, also, she's now also at Harvard and uh, they wrote the book. This time is different, which. Sort of um, uh, does this taxonomy of 800 years of sovereign defaults. It's not like a Grisham novel by any means. It's pretty dry stuff, <laughs> But but that was a golden moment for them, and um, they're now out there really proselytizing that it's the emerging markets that are just going to get slaughtered here as um, commodity as the as growth slows down, um, uh, the world becomes deglobalized. Uh, We've feasted on 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 low interest, easy money, uh, and those sovereigns have continued to feast on that. And um, some, you know, the 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 debt will be denominated in euros or dollars, so they won't even have the ability to print print money and print their way out of this. Not that that's good to do. Um, It's going to be pretty ugly in the medium term with those that are at the bottom of the pyramid, but those at the top of the pyramid. sadly maybe, I don't know, maybe it's not yeah. uh, how everyone feels about it uh, don't listen to them complain uh, oh, i like yeah. i can't get my hair done <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how about you uh, do you have food on your table
2: yeah yeah big issues uh any emerging economies that will come out stronger because of this uh wow um Great question. I'm not sure.
1: I, 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 I wouldn't call Puerto Rico an emerging economy. But uh <laughs> I mean, but, but it I would say this. Look, um I, I think that um there will be sort of enclaves that, that that will benefit from just the changes that go on. And I, I think Puerto Rico and the Caribbean will be one area. And, and and here's a couple of reasons why. Um if you have a choice to travel some ultimately we're gonna be traveling again and everybody has to go on vacation people need the sunshine they're going to go somewhere they could get on that plane they could go to europe they could go asia somewhere else they're going to be more likely to go to the caribbean because it's easier and that's just one thing that's going to happen which will be very useful although the cruise ships i don't quite know how they survived this but put that aside but i also think puerto rico has really interesting tax advantages um, that just make it attractive. And uh, in a deglobalized world, you're going to want to leave your money in a place where you have rule of law that you're comfortable with, like the United States, and it is a territory, so you have that. You could see some real benefit there. Otherwise, it's anybody's guess, Dennis. And I'll tell you what, I'm a a huge Black Swan fan, and, and, and in part that means these guesses that we all like to have and and i every morning and every evening i make my predictions so stupid <laughs> 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 yeah stupid.
0: and i think yeah and that's the uh, the uncertainty right and it's um, you know who knows and it is you know, thinking about those emerging markets as much as we don't know you know going back we always looked at Japan and China as kind of the nose next big emerging markets potentially. And, you know, you, you looked at Japan and then what ended up happening there is their population sort of aged out and then the focus shift to China. All right. But I mean, those guys are also in a similar position with a very aged population. And I think this morning they just released another enormous you know job loss report there as well. So even the ones that we look at historically, as you said, we're are a little uncertain. So I mean what what there's there's not really a good model out there right now as you said that it's going to say this this region or that region maybe like you said it is the little enclaves that are going to kind of emerge that we may not necessarily have looked at before, right? And when they do, you know, because all of us need to get out, right? You know, do you think there's going to be that mass movement and then will their economy and their infrastructure be able to support movement like like all of a sudden we decide puerto rico is the next hot spot right it's a real what problem. Do we do that yeah it's a real problem
1: in 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 puerto rico on the island um i had actually talked to uh, uh, a couple of hospitals about putting solar on and to defer their electricity costs and um uh, and the professionals that i talked to who we were running the hospitals we were just top flight professionals but yeah, you know, it's just a world of pain, and, and anywhere like that, it, the, the the hospitals are are certainly not um, you know the new brand spanking new global gazillion bed you know state of the art hospitals. They're just not. They're not anywhere in the world. And I agree with you. If there's a a, a problem. Um, those places can get overrun really quickly. And in a place like that, in, in the Caribbean, you've got this cruise ship problem where it's just nasty stuff it's just, it's just greening around the Caribbean <laughs> waiting for a place to land. And,
0: yeah, um, and I think this morning, I think the report was almost 52,000 employees of those cruise companies are still stuck on the boats, right? Okay. So again, oh, they okay. So I mean, there's just so many challenges right now that they're dealing with. So since we kind of migrated into the the healthcare discussion, <laughs> so from your perspective, you know, dealing with economies and wages, you know, the the healthcare costs, you know, there's some reports out there, and I don't know how true they are. You know, if you look at the annual growth of healthcare costs, some are saying that that's almost, in a way, have reached a peak. Right. Do you believe that that is the case, or do you think healthcare is still going to be a significant impact on our ability to increase our earnings?
1: I think one of the consequences of deglobalization will inevitably be some inflation, and I think when you have inflation, you're going to have more costs across the board, and I just can't believe that our healthcare system, which has continued to you know have increased costs. Is is going to not have that Uh, in an inflationary world. And I don't think it takes a lot of inflation, but there's going to be, I can't believe there's not some in the medium term. It's going to cost us more. But I'll tell you another thing that's going to be scary, Patrick. Uh, And you hear, um, if you listen closely to our former chairman, Janet Yellen, of the the Fed chair, as well as the current one, um, uh, Jerome Powell, and Bernanke, uh, all of them. Uh, Larry Summers of of, of the former Treasury Secretary. I'm sure Steve Mnuchin, if he was allowed to talk, would say the same (laughs) thing. (laughs) That's your boots is allowed to talk much. But um, uh, if you look in the long term, 15 years, 20 years, we have a huge debt that we're going to have to wrestle with in our entitlement programs. Mm -hmm. Um, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid and the three biggies. And. We're going to have to do something, uh, otherwise one or more of them will be either bankrupt or will substantially decrease benefits. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's inevitable as well. That's going to happen. Now, when that happens, keep in mind there's, there's a lot of behavioral economics at play here. And when that happens, something called prospect theory comes into play and prospect theory is a wonderful, very powerful theory from Professor Kahneman who uh, runs Princeton Psychology Group and a guy who's passed away um, didn't get to win the Nobel Prize, is uh, Tversky from, from Israel. Uh, basically, prospect theory is a, um, a, a, a marginal utility theory that says um, relative to a reference point, losses tend to hurt more than gains feel good, and that speaks volumes as to the risks we're prepared to take when we're in a loss position compared to a gain position. So the classic example is um, a stock trader who um, sees a stock go up a little bit. They uh, love that, feels good. They want to walk in gain. They want to be risk averse. When the stock drops, it hurts. They're bummed. They're really not happy. Let it ride. We're going to make it back down more. Let it ride some more. And (laughs) and a lot lot of these um, great studies have shown that stock traders can just ride it down to zero. Uh, Gambler's the same thing. And um, that's all it prospect theory is all about. So if we're used, if our reference point is we're going to get Medicare, we're going to get Medicaid, we're going to get Social Security, and the government comes in and says, I got to cut that back, that's going to hurt. There's going to be um, a lot more risk that will um, be easier to take. I promise you the president that's in the office when that happens will be out, right? Like, yeah. like a good throw yeah, in yeah. a hot corner in baseball.
0: You know, you're out of there. Uh,
1: yeah. Uh, thoughts there. I'm I mean, sort of Yeah, got, no. It's, uh,
0: no, I think you're right on. And I think the idea of prospects theory and behavioral economics actually play a significant role in there, right? Because again, we're the ones reacting, where the individuals in leadership roles are the ones making the decisions, you know, whether they realize it or not, oftentimes follow these trajectories. I
2: right. hey see. Um, it, it, I keep hearing that de-globalization and uh, man, that just scares me. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've been teaching courses that it's all about globalization, globalization. And so if, if this is the future um, I, I guess my next question would be what steps is, is, will we have to take as, as Americans or as a country to be stable or self sufficient because we rely on so many countries for so many things um, it's so economically?
1: True. It's so
2: true.
1: Um, um, so, you know, this, this, this issue of deglobalization, uh, uh, together with a couple of others, I don't think that they were. I don't think they started with the pandemic. I think they just got get accelerated with the pandemic. So this whole um, sort of protectionist, you know, um, America first or my country first. It's not just America, even though our president likes to wave the flag and think there's some uniqueness to it. It's really gone all over the world. And in in, in Europe, there's tremendous populist movement that's functionally deglobalization. I think. Um, they just probably have a harder time doing it. Um, but but you're right, Dennis, and it, it's got to mean lower growth. Um, there's other things out there like lower tax revenues, too. But um, what does that world look like? Here's my best guess. That first, we bring means of production back to the United States, uh, even if it's redundant means of production. Supply chains um, shrink they don't enlarge. Uh, uh, so we're less likely to be reliant on Asia, um, Europe, uh, Africa, and probably to a lesser extent South America. And that's one big thing that happens. And by the way, when that happens, now you've got a handful of trickling effect things, you, you've got to pay people more, right? Because a worker in the United States costs more than a worker in Southeast Asia. And yeah, it's the way it goes. Uh, that's you got an inflationary factor there. Um, uh, you've got sort of a, a a retraining of employees, and we had a horrible jobs report today, um, and that'll take a while to sort of work through the system. But if you bring means of employment back, the good news is we're going to need more people to work. Um, that's good. All, all, all of all of that's good. So You take that, then take another part to this, and let me give you another behavioral. Um, economic term, that's called the availability heuristic. And uh, that says basically that um, when a sensational event occurs, people um, believe that the event will reoccur in a higher probability than the true probabilities suggest. So 9-11 occurred. For a couple of years after that occurred, I'd walk on a plane, I'd look left, I'd look right, I'd say, are we going to blow up today? And ultimately, I conclude we're not. Or <laughs> we are, I'm going to have a, you know, ginger ale and maker's Mark. <laughs> Say my goodbye. Um, uh, that, that's going to be with us in this pandemic for quite some time. Uh, everybody in the world is not, is going to remember this and is going to think this could happen again. We, you're seeing it in, um, uh, you're, you're seeing a fool's game on one side, and on the other side, you're still, you're seeing this apply very strong. When everybody is saying, look, we're likely to have a recurrence in the fall or the winter, that, that could very well be true from a science perspective. When you think about the availability heuristic, we think, wow, that's going to be a certainty, and that's going to really send me into orbit, uh, which is true. The other factor is it, we. you hear a lot of people say, let's get a vaccine, and that's going to solve all of our problems. But the truth is it won't, because we will say to ourselves, that's nice that we took care of the coronavirus, but the next pandemic will be around the corner. We'll need another vaccine. Wear your mask. Wear your gloves. Don't travel. You know, be careful. I think that those, those factors are going to influence us for a long time. That will create more deglobalization. We'll be on planes less, um, much, much less. We'll have less international business transactions. We'll bring more means of
0: production back. The growth is going to be terrible. So, you know, when thinking about some of the concepts you're talking about, and it makes me wonder about our demographic here in the United States you know, domestically. Uh, you know, we we're blessed with kind of one of the younger populations in the, in the developed world, you know, so from our economic standpoint and their livelihoods, do you think, you know, because of what's happening, they're going to have to work longer, you know, so instead of retiring at 65, they may have to work to 75, right? You know, what, healthcare costs, pension fund obligations, interest rates, I mean, there's just so many variables there. You know, how, how do you think that may change?
1: Who knows, right? Who knows. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah.
0: But certainly,
1: there's a demographic that it, it may not be those that are 10 years old today, but there, there's some demographic, whether it's the 20 year olds, or 30 year olds, or 40 year olds, that are just um, not going to be able to catch up in you know 10 years of very slow to no growth, and they'll have to work longer. Right? But, perhaps, but but I doubt you know when you, when you shift the demographic a little lower who knows maybe maybe they can catch up but there's gonna be a group right that's gonna have a tough time catching up
0: so i'm gonna give you i'm gonna give you dibs on naming that group so we'll trademark it here (laughs) 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 yeah i mean it's just (laughs) yeah and that's where i i struggle a little bit because i mean obviously our students in college now maybe not so much impacted but you know that group behind them and you know you're getting questions like well you know how am I going to save for retirement? You know, what are my interest rates going to look like? You know, healthcare costs. What is my pathway through what we define as you know success or our livelihood really going to be like? Because uh, you look at the next generation's post-significant events, all right And it's—I mean—it always seems to be recovering at least domestically because we live in such a stable environment. Right? And I think this is the first time where, as a country, we're kind of thrusted into something that is a period of instability. And as Americans, or at least from a domestic standpoint, I don't think we're comfortable with that. Whereas, even though it's it's still as devastating globally, I think they, I think other countries or other areas are a little bit more used to instability. So their response is a little bit more coordinated or better than what ours is right now, perhaps.
1: So you guys, I, I, you've been asking me questions for 45 minutes. <laughs> I want to ask you some questions.
0: Yes, please do.
1: <laughs> Go for it. And by the way, Patrick, I think you right. I'd love both of your views. Patrick, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but I would love both of your views on um, what does higher education look like in the short and medium <laughs> term? Wow. That's the biggest – it's going to be change,
2: huge to change. I mean, I've had yeah. conversations with uh, concerning that, and I get spectrums that, you know, that uh, there's the many students, they, they want that experience, and they want to be on campus and all that, and, you know, they'll, they'll get back to that. But I disagree. I think that parents are going to play a huge role in that, and a lot of parents are going to say, hey, no, stay at home. Look, you guys are doing it right now. You're successful. I don't have to pay for your uh, a dorm. I don't have to pay for your food. Uh, I mean, we're seeing that it's a lot cheaper to follow this this route. So, I, personally, I think it's going to change drastically, and you're going to find that uh, people are going to like this, uh, this I don't know, this experience of learning, distance learning. So, Um, I don't know. I don't know. And I I think a lot of the universities, even though it's costing them a large amount of money, but in the long run, I mean, you don't have to have as many buildings. You don't have to have as uh, much electricity on and usage of water. And I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. I know that I teach for Penn State as well. And I know that their world campus, um, I teach for the world campus. And I'll tell you what, their, their enrollment just keeps going up and up in comparison to, uh, face-to-face, or brick-and-mortar. So, I, I don't know. Isn't that great? And yeah, your, and, uh, co- go please. ahead,
1: Steve. Well, your, your, your comment's interesting about the parents. They have to really like their children to want them to stay at home. But <laughs>
2: Yeah. <laughs> and maybe yeah, some yeah. want to send them off. But That's, um... right.
1: That's right. Mine would. Mine would say, get out. Please, go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I, don't
0: I, know. I would take a little bit more of a macro view, and you know, if you look at it from like a systems theory perspective, you know, most systems, i.e. industries, you know, are always seeking stability, all right? So when you have these major disruptions, they're always finding ways to get back to the, the norm, unless there's such a catastrophic change, you know, in that external environment that forces that internal structure to change itself. And I think we're in one of those defining moments right now. And, you know, on the pendulum of of, I guess, agility, and you know, to change, you know, higher ed has been almost like a slumbering dinosaur, <laughs> you know, for mm-hmm. lack of other terms, right? And, you know, it's, it's been able to weather a lot of those changes in the environment. But I think this might be one that is going to really deeply impact that in this industry. And I think, you know, the, going into you know super specifics, you know, we're probably going to be at a point where we're required to now start to really think about how we deliver our classes, what we offer our students, you I know, mean, what does higher ed actually look like? Um, because if we don't, as you said, you know, those who are more nimble or more willing to change, I, I, like you said, are, are, I think are going to be better off in the end. So
2: I think, um, an example was this morning, the, uh, uh, superintendent for the Pittsburgh public schools uh, put out a statement that they're probably going to uh, still do online because uh, how do you do social distancing in an education environment uh, in a classroom? It's very difficult. How do you keep a space between people? So, uh, you know, we already see people saying, wait a minute, we can't, how are we going to do this? Uh, we can't go back to the norm. Um, and For what time frame this is going to play out too i think that's a key uh factor as well how long is it gonna how long is this gonna be you know
0: yeah and again not you know, diving too deep into religion but you know what's the first thing that a lot of you know churches around the area did Just jumped right online right yeah. so again I, i'm pulling examples from you know, other areas of the world but it's again it's have to change so so how did we do, Steve? I mean, do we answer your question?
1: <laughs> you did, but I have more now.
0: Yeah, oh, please.
1: <laughs> so, let, please go. Let's, let's hit on the religion part for just one second. Have you noticed yeah. that more um there are more commercials on TV related to um religions and you know, now is the time to turn to religion. Well, you know, whatever the religion may be, all of them are like now advertising more. Have you seen that? And what do you think about
2: that? I think that falls right in line with the 9/11. It just seems like whenever there's a tragedy or or some kind of uh, some threatening the way of life, people automatically turn to religion because uh, uh, maybe they they embrace or they are some si- some type of security there or some type of hope. I think that word hope is a is a big one, and people just get scared. I think and. Uh, they begin to do, do these uh self-evaluations and start thinking maybe i uh maybe i to uh, start thinking about uh the here <laughs> i don't know i'm just saying you know, it scares yeah. people yeah I think,
0: I think you're absolutely right and i and i always harken back to that quote of you know there's no atheist in foxholes right <laughs> so yeah I, religiosity and, and belief in whatever religion i think again it's it comes back to the idea of, of hope and humanity, right? And I think it's a really good thing, especially right now, because the more students that, you know, even as guests we've had on this show, you know, they have expressed that that belief that, you know what, before all this happened, I was booked nine to five. I had, you know, gym and homework and school and job and, and they've talked a lot about slowing down. You know, connecting with families and connecting with friends and actually enjoying that time. And I think religion and religiosity is one of those things that, that kind of force you to do that. So it's not a bad reminder.
1: I I, I asked the question of the students at, at Rutgers, um, what good has come of this pandemic? And that's an example of it, right? Maybe we're slowing that's down awesome. and thinking a little more deeply.
2: That's I think All right. I I asked that same question to some of my students, and I was really surprised that maybe we see the family structure coming back. They're saying, oh, I got to know my family much better. Uh, Oh, I'm relating to my father as an adult now instead of a a child. And, you know, they're getting to know their family again. So I I see a lot of, I mean, there are some good things coming from this, but, uh, yeah, it's it's hard to say where it's all going to go, though.
0: So it sounds like you two are offering to babysit my kids for a few days. Yeah.
2: Well, that's, yeah. hey, um, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta go. See you later. Oh, no,
0: I'm
2: the insurance <laughs> policy
1: you'd have to take out for me would be messed up I love it. <laughs> you couldn't do it any other way. I would be. Uh, so how, how, how have the professors at, at Point Park generally? I've talked to a number of them, but what's your sense of how they've responded to this and having to go online and Um, and all of that
0: yeah you know what in all honesty like you said they are you know they love refining their craft right so you know they're they're teaching because they have a passion for teaching and and being involved you know in in the student development as they are right so the the fact that they had to move online again for those of you who are used to being in the classroom was a little bit Okay, it's not the greatest thing because again, we love the face to face, but they all transitioned very effectively. <laughs> it um, scares and- me
2: in my future. Um, <laughs> that was my niche. I was an online teacher for several years, and not too many people wanted to do it. And now, <laughs> now everybody has that experience. I'm no longer a. Uh, uh, how do you want to put it? Needed. Well, actually, it's it's, not so
1: fast. That no, no, no,
2: no. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about that because, again,
0: the, the capacity is still there. All right. Yeah. So, you know, we still need the same courses, whether they're taught on ground or online. Um, right. You know, enrollment might take a little bit of a hit. So, again, there might be a few less courses to run over the short term. But, again, like you said, I think as I agree with Steve, and if anything, it's going to have to grow.
2: hmm. Oh, I agree. Yeah,
1: and so I've really so I also um, made the tr- transition from in classroom, and you can tell how shy I am. So you know, it was a struggle <laughs> for me. And then, you know, moved maybe three or four years ago. Started teaching online as well, and uh, uh, it's a completely different skill set, right? And how do you, how, how do you feel about that? I assume you started in class and then moved.
2: To oh. Online. I did. I did. Actually, I was uh, I, I was totally against online uh, when I first started teaching. I was a face-to-face, and that was the best way, the only way. And after I started uh, getting opportunities to, to teach online, again, like you said, it's a different skill set. Actually, you work harder teaching online courses than you do teaching face-to-face. It's a lot more prep, a lot more uh, material that you need to offer, and so forth. But, you uh, I, it was a. I, I felt it was a great transition. I love it actually, and I think it was done correctly. Um, teaching online, uh, it is very. Um, uh, how do I put it? Um, it's a great way to uh, to 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 educate somebody. I just I really find that it, if it's done correctly, it's very efficient and uh, very rigorous versus some face to face because. And here's my philosophy, that in face-to-face, I found that uh, many students, you only have one or two that really uh, interact and really participate, and everybody kind of rides the shirt tails of those individuals, where online, if you set it up correctly, everybody has to get involved. There's nobody riding on the shirt tails of others, and they're forced to to be included in everything. So I think it's really, uh, it's a great, it's a great tool.
1: I so agree with you. I've had to be more creative in the yeah. online classes than in person. In person, it just sort of flows, and there's a, we're left off the hook as this in a Socratic method, as the students. And so, right. But online, you know, we're all
0: naked. Yeah. yeah. that's so very true. It's so very true.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Guys, you answer questions really well. You did a beautiful
2: job of that. Well, we do thank well, as you. with, with your own yeah. podcast as well.
0: Uh, we're we're, we're going to try that. <laughs> nice. So, Steve, what other projects or anything that you have coming up that you want to share with listeners? Um, you know, I know you're teaching a couple classes. Anything else on the horizon for you?
1: Uh, great question. Um, <laughs> uh, so what is on the horizon? Uh, I I I'm I'm very focused on this thesis of um this, this global flight fight for tax revenue. Uh, I really think that how this will cascade is that, um, uh, with the stimulus and lower growth, sovereign debt is going to grow enormously. And, uh, there's going to be fewer tax. There's going to be less tax revenue because every time there's reduced growth, there's less tax to pay on that reduced growth. And, um, Sovereigns are going to fight for those tax dollars. The United States is particularly good at being selfish about that. The United States is a very uncomfortable relationship with helping other sovereigns collect their tax. That's what the Revolutionary War was all about, presumably. And I think going back to those days, uh, uh, it's an uncomfortable place to be. And I think it's going to define what goes on in the medium term, say from eighteen months to five years it's going to be um uh, it's going to really divide nations it's going to divide um the international world it's going to it's 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 going to be a major topic of conversation that we got to watch out for can't wait for that
0: awesome so, awesome about that awesome well we're like you said looking forward to staying connected to you certainly are going to plan hopefully if you are willing to come back on the show again in the future it's uh, exciting excellent
1: would, uh, absolutely love to you guys you're fantastic yeah. just a real well, thank pleasure you. this is so much fun
2: yeah. awesome enjoyed it
0: okay final thoughts dennis anything good
2: uh, wow i was just like being in class learned an awful lot um <laughs> you know, about uh, economics. Again, I'm still just letting it all uh, hash out in my brain here. and uh, But it gives me uh, a lot of the things that we discussed, uh, I'll tell you, are thought-provoking. I'm going to spend some time thinking about some of these things. I didn't really think about all the ramifications or especially this deglobalization. I really got to give that some thought. Um, So it was very thought-provoking. I'm delighted. When, when it's done, we're going to go have a beer and talk about it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I love it. That's great. Yeah, and, you know, as you said, Dennis and Steve, I mean, there's a lot that's going to be kind of reshaping our new normal, you know, over the next few months. And, you know, everything from behavioral economics to prospect theory to everything in, in related to the tax consequences, it, it's going to all be interconnected. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see. And, again, we will certainly have you back. Uh, the future Steve so thank you I, so I, much I look forward to it I really enjoyed it guys it's been it's been a, absolutely a pleasure awesome so in closing I would like to thank again uh, Steve Adelkoff for joining us here on the podcast today owner if you reflect upon our conversation you know and again connecting back to what Kalashwitz said at the beginning when we opened the show and what we've really illuminated is the fact that circumstances are going to vary enormously and almost to the point where they're indefinable. You know, this vast array of factors for us as leaders really has to be appreciated, right? Especially in the light of the vast array of probabilities of loan. You know, as leaders, we are really responsible for evaluating the whole and we must bring to task the quality of intuition that perceives truth at many points, all right? So it's not just going to be one report or one model, all right? We have to really look at it holistically. Otherwise, the chaos of opinions and considerations that are going to arise amongst your teams are going to create an unavoidable environment entangled by diverging judgments and opinions, all right? And that's what's going to make our job challenging. And, you know, it's podcasts like we did today with our guests with Steve that are going to add knowledge to our individual lenses you know, and to go back to quote klaus Schwitz one more time you know he even joked that napoleon bonaparte rightly said you know that when many of the decisions faced by those in leadership positions resemble mathematics worthy of the gifts of newton all right so none of this is easy you know this is complex but it's our jobs as leaders to take the complex and make them simple all right not diminishing the complexity that each of these environments are going to present to us but make it understandable for not only ourselves to make decisions but the individuals that we lead so in closing you know we Beautiful want to thank stated. thank you sir we appreciate it <laughs> So but again, thank you to Steve Abakoff for joining us today. Uh, We also want to thank the Department of Labor Relations at IUP and as well as the Roland School of Business at Point Park for providing support to this podcast and our technical wizardry behind the scenes, Angelo. Again, check out his podcast. Uh, Again, he's a pretty popular dude. He's got some awesome stuff happening. (laughs) happening over there. So thank you to all of our listeners, both here in the U.S. and around the world. We truly appreciate everything that you guys are doing. Keep sending us questions and stay tuned for our first video podcast where we answer your questions that were submitted. Uh, We should have that out here in the coming weeks ahead. So until then, be safe, stay healthy, and we look forward to talking to you guys soon.